Let's talk the legacy of division. Welcome to Gogarin, the Eurozine podcast with authors and editors of cultural journals from throughout Europe and beyond. Eurozine is an online magazine and a network of 90 partners. Journals, magazines and associates from Belgium to Belarus, from Norway to Bulgaria, publishing literature and analyzing politics, reflecting on culture and bringing diverse voices to a joint conversation. I'm editor-in-chief Reka Kinga-Pop, and today I'm really happy to be, well, for a change, physically joined by the curators of our series, The Legacy of Division, uh, a focal point you can find on Eurozine.com. And our, our guests now joining me uh, in Budapest are Luka Alicia Gabrielcic, editor of our partner journal Raspotje from Slovenia, and Ferenc Lazzo from the Maastricht University, who are uh, the curators and um, and the editors of both the series of this title and the forthcoming print issue based on this, uh, published by CEU Press, with the support of Bundeszentrale für politische Bildung. Welcome and hello, guys. Thanks for being with us here. Hello, Rika. Thanks for having us. Th thanks for having us. We have this forthcoming print issue based on the series that you curated throughout a bit more than a year in Eurozine. Tell me about how it came about, why you chose to del delve so much into the 30th anniversary of 1989. And by 1989, we mean a bit more than that actual year's anniversary. So we were thinking around the summer of 2018, uh, just a year before the big anniversary of 1989, what might be the most exciting question to ask after three decades? of the transformation of Europeanization, if you wish, of Eastern Europe. And we thought that there's a lot of controversy around how East-West relations have actually evolved. Uh, we were meant to come closer uh, and we were meant to build a unified continent. And by the 2010s, I think it has become fairly uh, obvious that that hasn't quite succeeded, that a lot of uh, the Cold War division uh, that we've uh, we've known when we were very small uh, are still sort of having certain legacies, are still impacting the perception between the two halves of the continent, and in fact certain stereotypes, certain prejudices between East and West have been revived. Uh, and we thought that the most interesting thing we could do uh, on the 30th anniversary uh, was, to, was to address what has really happened since 89, you know, why those hopes, why those promises of really unifying East and West after the Cold War have only worked out partially. And we have a bunch of varying answers. Ferenc Lotso gave, gave the answer. I forgot to <laughs> introduce you properly before you started to speak. Sorry for that. Uh, Luka Lissem Gabrielcic, what do you think are the main lines uh, between the answers we have? quite a swath of, of responses in the print volume and some more uh, in the online series, they do sort of revolve around a, a bunch of recurring questions. Some of them say that this division was supposed to go away all in all, but this might have just been a foolish hope. Some say that this division uh, was meant to go away, but the exchange or the influences weren't mutual or weren't balanced. I think that's two most recurring theme. What do you think yeah, about that? Uh, so what's what's your key to this? I would go back to what uh, Ferris said uh, when he introduced the idea for the volume. Uh, we wanted to do something on, on the University of 1989, and we didn't want to do something, you know, usual, like celebrating this anniversary, uh, because I think we both felt, everybody in a certain sense, all of our generation felt that there is a certain unease, right, and at uh, this uh, round anniversary uh, of the fall of the Berlin War, uh, wall, a type of unease that was not present maybe like on the, th on the 20th anniversary, which was much more, you know, canonized in a way that everybody accepted, or even the 25th, and something changed. And I think that that's something that, that's something that changed is, was not just that a sense that that we are not, you know, converging with with the West. Let's say we, you know, we, we come from different countries, you know, different experience. I come from a, like, former non-aligned, quote-unquote, country. Ferry comes from a, a kind of uh, one of the many, you know, sub subspecies of, uh, of, uh, of the Eastern Bloc countries. So these are already, like, very different or substantially different experiences. The Legvidama so, Barak. So the, the gayest Barak, as Hungarians yes, used to call themselves. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, so it, the, the point was not just that the convergence was not 
wasn't happening. But in certain sense, I think that was, uh, in a way, a shock of the f- uh, past five years that, you know, if you looked at Western politics, somehow Western politics became much more similar to the one we were used, you know, from the Balkans, from Yugoslavia. If you look at Trump, for example, you know, everybody who knows the, the you know, the history of Yugoslav politics in the past 30 years immediately recognizes what this is about, immediately recognizes, you know, the, the type of person he is. Yeah, I think around 2016, there was also like yes. a moment when we, we sort of were looked at intellectuals or, or contributors from the former Eastern Bloc as some sort of babelfish who are supposed to be able to translate the authoritarian exactly. language. Yes, which yes. Which is also very yes. offensive on a level, but it sort well, of does an opportunity for a lot of us. Offensive in a way, but also liberating for many people, right? Because there was this this difference that that uh, that we are trapped in a certain Zonderweg, that, that we are, you know... In a place, and we have to look towards the West, which is so much better in you know in all aspects. Yeah. That was suddenly gone, and although it was gone, it was to a part to a certain extent liberating. It was also like, uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, there was an increased sense of anxiety, right? So there was an, a, a type of convergence happening as well. You can see, you started to seeing certain patterns of uh, you know political culture that was previously typical for let's say peripheral, quote-unquote, semi-peripheral countries coming uh, to the West. And, of course, the other way around, that there was a certain type of, let's say, xenophobic, anti-migrant discourse that we were not so familiar, if we remember, like 10 years ago, the nationalism of this part of, of, of Europe was, was of a different kind. It was much more rooted, you know, in older traditions about, you know, medieval glory and so on and so forth. And then it became more similar, adopting themes that were uh, that we were more used to identify with in the West, like this, this anti-migrant issue, you know, the the, the anti-Islamophobic, um, um, uh, you know, themes. So there was a certain uneasy convergence, and 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 our you know intent in this volume was so kind of, you know, um, try to trace what actually happened in these 30 years, right? Beyond this easy uh, dichotomies and try to see, you know, there was a convergence in in some places. Are we more different? Are we more similar in a way that we didn't think about it? And I think the underlying theme is, of course, that's something that's even uh, maybe... um, to a certain extent, even um, a cliche that this idea of the end of history is definitely over, right? That we are beyond the end of history. Uh, but nevertheless, the, 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 then we have to, we haven't really kind of uh, made it clear for ourselves. We haven't really elucidated what does that mean for for Europe, right? We are definitely not, you can still see differences between East and West, uh, but we cannot even explain them anymore in terms of, you know, not catching up, right? And so we said, let's try to uh, to ask people from different generations, from different backgrounds, academics, public intellectuals, and so on, what do they think about it? And I think that the surprise, I think uh, we'll see if Ferry agrees, is that even though we didn't give any specific, uh, you know, guideline. We, we just let, you know, people just write what, you know, we said we, we sent a set of questions that we wanted everybody to address. And then we, we just saw what, what came back. And there was just suddenly, you know, even though there were, this is still a very plural type of answers, there, there were some clusters. Like some people started to, you know, answering questions in similar ways. Uh, but also diverging uh, from, uh, you know, in certain issues, also within patterns. So I think this was quite quite interesting. I think I think I think that the basic idea that is that uh, some so many authors were waiting for something like this. You know, they were waiting to to explain how they see already uh, thirty years, which is not. not yeah, a I small guess it period. could have, could have been a trigger also for a, a bunch of uh, shared experiences that one is not or was probably not supposed to elaborate on too much. There's a, a set of more personal essays um, in the volume and in the series which discuss this unease with uh, with convergence or the myths of how mm-hmm. the East was supposed to catch up with the West mm-hmm. as if there was a perfect example that you had to mimic. Mm-hmm. And some of them we are not going to detail here uh, um, very long because you guys can listen to or our listeners can uh, find the episodes upcoming and some of them already published for instance with uh, Holy Case and Ivan Krastev both published in the print volume too uh, who talked about uh, imitations and 
um, the unease about mm-hmm. political imitations before, around, and since 89. Um, Philippe Ter talked about the myths of economic shock therapy, comparing the Czech and the German examples. He's a um, huge essay you can read in your zine and in the print volume too, but you can listen to his lecture from our uh, conference last November, which we held in Berlin just a few days prior to the actual anniversary of the fall of the Berlin wall, which never actually fell and wasn't really a wall, but, you know, these nuances we will leave to Julia Zonevent, who is also published in the book and has a full uh, volume dedicated to this problem of the Berlin Wall and its mysticization. And you can also listen to Karl Schlögel's keynote, who addresses the problem from a very different point of view, who used to be a student in Moscow and uh, coming through with a very different perspective, the, the East German student from uh, from a Moscovite perspective, and Klaus Legevi, who talked with um, activists who are now organizing protest and give a very different perspective on on helplessness or hopelessness or hope or approach or outreach. So these are all very exciting, but we're not going to get into much detail about this. But we are going to talk about a few of our, our personal picks, not to be favoritist or not more than, you know, easy to allow for. Uh, but I... I think they are a bit representative of the big currents in the volume. So, Fetty, do you mind to tell us a few words about um, the article authored by Dorote Bola and Bela Greshkovic by the title Staring Through the Mocking Glass, Three uh, Misperceptions of the East-West Divide since 1989? Uh, gladly. I think it's one of the uh, key uh, arguments in the volume, and that's also why we placed uh, this essay first, uh, because Bola and Grashkovic show very nicely uh, that misperceptions and mistaken expectations have shaped the post-89 period. Uh, Eastern Europeans engaging uh, in this process of westernization, trying to sort of copy the Western model, expected to arrive uh, in the prosperous core region of the global economy. And I think Bole uh, and Grashkovic show very nicely uh, that this expectation was never quite realistic. They, they had actually uh, illusions about how far they can go. And this then generated a lot of disappointment and a lot of resentment uh, when this after couple of decades became ever more clear once they have joined the European Union. And they add another argument to it, which I find equally crucial, uh, which is that Eastern European countries joining the European Union, you know, members of these societies believed that the European Union would guarantee liberal democratic regimes, would help consolidate liberal democracies. And actually, after they have joined, they had to realize that the European Union is quite toothless and doesn't even quite have the willingness uh, to help, uh, you know, uh, strengthen uh, liberal democracies in uh, Eastern Europe. Uh, and so I think that's the other. So it's not the, the fun other... frolic of human rights that it was promised. Uh, exactly, exactly. Informally and promised. Precisely. And, and I think one of the paradoxes there is that during the uh, enlargement process, so while they were sort of the pupils of the Western Europeans, uh, their regimes were supervised uh, and they had to fulfill certain criteria. But once they became full members, uh, this was no longer the case. So the European Union uh, now appears in a very different light than it did during the the accession process, as it was called. If you want to see a contemporary example of this, uh, then you may want to check out the Mood of the Union series in Eurozine, which was uh, basically a series of, uh, well, um, a, a lot of concerns, but we focused on public sentiment in EU member states and in the neighborhood about the European elections and how people view the European elections, which are notoriously unpopular and raise fairly little interest for their weight. And it's striking how much more interested the general public and uh, media are in the nominee countries who are now in the accession program and would like to be members compared to those who are already anyway members. (laughs) It's it's kind of a painful contrast. And I think this is this is something that is replicated from say 10, 10 years back or a little bit more back when uh, the current Eastern members were in the accession program waiting for accession already um, joining the EU in the first few years and not yet admitting to the disadvantages or the disappointment. Um, but 
if you if you want to look for more details, I think about how non mutual the processes were. Uh, Klaus Legivi would be the author to turn to on the German unification in the volume. Luca, um, tell me about your choice. It's a it's another one. It's a, a more personal tone, and it's a very different perspective. You chose the essay of Owen Hetherley whose title is Just Because the Map Says So Doesn't Mean It's True, and it's a British perspective on Die Wende. How does yeah, it come about? That's a young uh, English author, which who I think is quite familiar to you know those who follow you know contemporary English literature. Um, and he has a very kind of personal uh, relationship to family relationship to the to the let's say tradition of leftism in in the West. You know, his grandparents and parents and grandparents, I think especially grandparents, were um, very active in the British English uh, um, Trotskyist Trotskyite tradition. And and he then reflects about these things from the perspective of let's say um, a failed uh, Marxist utopia. Um, and it's it's about his let's say personal personal encounters with the younger and older generation of uh, post dissidents in in East Central Europe, and it's witty, it's critical towards let's say the um, the established liberal um, utopias or liberal misconceptions that they might have, and it's also very interesting how he you know it's it's he doesn't want to like. Uh, apologize for for his family past and he uh, stresses which is quite interesting this difference in, in in perspective right for somebody who experienced the 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 post-war and 20th century tradition of, of Western leftism, not from the perspective of, you know, leftist engagements, uh, you know, not from the perspective of, you know, a book that Tony Jott might, might write about what uh, what uh, Aron wrote to, about Sartre and so on, but uh, about, you know, struggles, uh, union struggles and so on and so forth. And his encounters with Central Europe, uh, which is, you know, it's, he, he writes in such a very nice self-reflective tone. You know, there, there are some points in which he might be a little bit dismissive, but he's also like very ironic towards his own position. And it's it's a very interesting uh, perspective. And I, it's, what a, I, it's a bit of a farce on, on the Western traveler who yeah, comes yeah, yeah. to explore this wondrous land of you know, the East. In, in a way, yes, but it's also, it's a way, it's, 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 it's at the same time, it's, it's criticism of, of that sort of, of gaze, I think. Uh, sort of self-ironic, uh, self-referential. Um, but what I found very interesting is at the end of the essay, he then, you know, um, already reflects on this post-Brexit uh, Britain, what I talked before, you know, that, that, and then he starts listing that maybe in a certain sense, um, there were much more similarities between Britain and, let's say, post-communist uh, countries that one might realize, you know, and then he, and then he points out, you know, several issues, you know, from, you know, um, uh, the weeks, the week, a weak welfare state, uh, this kind of explosion of post eighty nine uh, speculation, uh, especially real estate speculation, how this, you know, many cities changed into into tourist traps and so on. And then, you know, he tries to, to show that in a way, you know, these two countries, even though they're very different, uh, they might have more in common in a certain sense mm-hmm. than Britain has with, with Germany or, or with France. And it's, it's a sort of very interesting perspective that, that kind of really reflects on this from a very personal angle on this issue of convergence and divergence, which be, has become, I think, very, very um, present in the, yes. you know, since Brexit, since 2016. Yeah, and if I may add to that, you know, one of the great ironies now looking back from, again, the perspective of 2000. is that the two countries that have, at least economically speaking, benefited the most from the end of the Cold War are Germany on the one hand and China on the other, which is, of course, supremely ironic because the one was where the wall was opened when there was this liberal democratization and the other one where 89 really means a year of repression, Tiananmen Square massacre and all the things uh, we are familiar with. And nevertheless, if you look at the post-Cold War decades, Mm. is is these two countries that, that really managed to shape globalization. I mean, Germany becomes the leading economic powerhouse of Europe, and China starts to impact the global economy in a way that even the U.S. feels uh, gravely uh, threatened by it, 
by now. And that, of course, now looking back, uh, means that we don't quite know who won the Cold War mm. anymore, right? We had a standard mm. narrative that this was yes. about the victory of the West. This was about the Western path, Westernization. But if you put it together, China uh, and Germany as the two main uh, benefactors, uh, or sorry, beneficiaries of, mm. of this uh, process, uh, then you come to very different conclusions. And James Wong also recalls this in the volume in his essay titled The End of the Liberal World as We Know It to Walls in 1989, um, also pointing out that the story of Tiananmen Square was not as uh, sort of predecided and obvious a route as then retroactively it would have been told. So now when we think about Tiananmen Square in popular culture, this is some kind of inevitable moment when somebody stood up or says some students stood up against a repressive regime but never stood a chance. And Wong tells a very different story of um, of the democracy vols and, uh, and a popular strive for, for something freer and something more democratic. And then a, a very brutal repression that wasn't obvious that would come. And I think that's a that's an important perspective. Nia Chitalan adds to that by the title Vests, East, Wests and Divides, uh, further developing this discourse on how China seems to have come out of this whole thing on the top of things, despite what was expected. It was told as a as a story of liberation, the end of history colloquially. And now it seems like it's a very different ending than than we thought we were living Absolutely. in. Yes. No, I think one of the, the things that I really like about this volume, if I may say so as a, as a co-editor, is that uh, generally when we talk about 1989, it's a very European story. And we tend to forget, of course, that the fall of this bipolar world really affected the entire yep. the entire globe. You know, from uh, South Africa to to China. You know, yep. to to um, after all, to, to Latin America, right, to, to Cuba and so on. And so I think if uh, it, it's it's a pity that we don't have more about these countries, right, about South Africa, about mm-hmm. about Cuba, that they are just sporadically mentioned. But I'm really glad that we have like very relevant texts about China. Yes. Um, and I think Wang's text is really, really, very really lucid because in a way, as as mm-hmm. you said, it's kind of presents certain things that are probably will be uh, unfamiliar to Western reader. Uh, in a very kind of accessible way. At the same time, he kind of draws uh, a picture of current of current um, situation, which is very kind of uh, open ended, non theological. He kind of points out, yeah, of course, that we obviously, I think, we everybody realizes now that we are not living in a time of of liberal theology anymore. That that there is no, you know, inevitable or even likely convergence with a liberal democratic norm. On the other hand, we shouldn't take this as you know as a, a Kind of as an argument that that we are entering either a new, you know, totally new phase or or whatever. That things are very much open ended, and then especially that like the the types and the forms uh, that you know liberal politics will take or might take in the future will be very different. And I think this is sort of uh, kind of very lucid open endedness. It's mm-hmm. it's it's mm-hmm. very uh, it's a very good read. Again, maybe two points uh, in connection with that. One is that we try to address these questions on four scales. There's a lot in the volume that specifically uh, discusses the German uh, reunification mm-hmm. process, right? Uh, the, the relations between East and West within the so-called reunified uh, Germany after 1990. We do that with the European Union, right? So-called older and so-called newer member states, right? East and West uh, in, in that respect. We also bring in Russia and Russia's relation uh, to the West, right? Russia is the major uh, loser uh, of the of the end of the Cold War, if you wish, or at least of its uh, uh, longer term uh, consequences. And then we try to go global uh, a bit. And I think Luca is entirely right uh, in emphasizing that we might have done more about that. But this is again a volume which primarily focuses on uh, Europe and on what has happened to the East and the West within Europe. But there is, I think, a big global punchline. And that's what comes in, I think, in Barbara Falk's excellent essay, who says that the problem partly is that the lessons of 1989 have been misconstrued in the West. So there was an idea that democratization can happen from one moment to the next. Societies 
can basically erupt uh, and uh, some and positive changes would follow and this model this template which the Americans thought came from what they saw on the ground in Eastern Europe was then basically something that they tried to apply uh, with the invasion of Iraq, for instance, right? They thought that if you overthrow a dictator, the popular masses will, so to say, take power uh, and democracy doesn't need to have specific preconditions for it to be consolidated. Now, of course, or what Barbara... for that matter. Exactly. Yeah. And what Barbara Fox shows that that's actually not at all what happened in Eastern Europe, that 89 was, a, was the outcome of a long process of learning uh, and also of patience and people coming up with new strategies of how to really come with come up with a better deal uh, that also representatives of repressive regimes were willing to enter into, right? And that mm. was really not at all spontaneous, uh, like the myth uh, of 89 had it uh, in the West afterwards. Yeah, that's, that's another, there is another edge uh, in, in her, I think, brilliant uh, article that really addresses the, the current issues that we are facing now. Uh, even before the uh, the COVID crisis, we were living in, in the previous year in a moment of explosion of, uh, you know, revolutionary modes all around the globe, you know, if, you, if we remember. <laughs> we have to say if we remember because it seems that you know, the, pre, the, pre, uh, uh, the pre-pandemic the pre time is, is far, far away, but it was last year, yeah. So you had from Chile, you know, uh, Hong Kong, uh, Barcelona, you know, all these places were like... Uh, in in kind of a, a upheaval, upheaval mode, then there was a little bit of uh, well, a substantial, you know, uh, kind of calming, if you to say, or like a new crisis came in, and now we are again seeing, you know, with Be- Belarus and so on. Uh, well, Lebanon, yeah. Lebanon, if let's, you know, we we can, you know, go around the globe yeah. and see all this uh, uh, this this movements reemerging. And what Barbara Falk stresses is not just that we have learn the wrong lessons from 89 and then we have to learn the right lessons <laughs> but also of course that the times have changed right and that if we take these legacies more loosely of, of 89 we we can still approach uh, with the same let's say taking the values in mind because we can approach the, the the issue of democratization by taking into account what has happened in the meantime the internet how the internet has helped on the one hand and perverted on the other hand uh, let's say uh, public engagement and she thinks very hard about how to engage in political uh, activism in this post not not post internet uh, age, but this in this age where internet is definitely not anymore well, just a, age, it's it's say. not just a, a promise anymore. Quite obviously, it has be, where in the age where internet has very clearly become an instrument as well, if not even more of of uh, you know dictators and tyrants. And uh, with Corona, even more expensively, basically permeating states, every absolutely. every um, layer of our lives. Indeed, and uh, and she 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 does a very interesting analysis of the. Um, Recent, this was I think a couple of years ago, upheavals revolution in Armenia. Mm-hmm. And she says we have to look to Armenia to see the lessons of how uh, of how protests might be successful in the future. And she says that it differs uh, even substantially from the the eighty nine, even if learned properly. Eh? Mm-hmm. Uh, things have changed since eighty nine. The desideratum, also like what we can achieve, has changed, and the uh, the protesters in Armenia have taken this into account. And she then analyzes very interesting. I think it's one of the best analysis I think I've uh, I've read about this revolution so far. May I ask, Reka, which essay in the volume perhaps speaks the most to you, or <laughs> one of, one of the many, perhaps that that, that you would want to? Yeah. Uh, so there's a bunch uh, of personal discuss. favorites, but I'm I'm going to be a favoritist really, and and uh, just mention Yulia Zonevan's essay, not simply because. She was one of my favorite professors ever. Also, I was in her first class when she first started to teach at the Budapest University of Elta. Um, and she she really was an amazing uh, sort of uh, door opener into a different world of thinking, but also because she voices a sort of post-Soviet anxiety that I think many of us... Um, Easterners, especially Easterners trying to make their way uh, or find their positions in the West or in different uh, different setups than we were brought up in. We have that. This is the anxiety of the passport control, the anxiety from the doorman, the, the deep-rooted fear from authority, which is different from, say, a class-based fear from authority. This is more mm-hmm. the sort of uh, deeply sort of uh, baked in... Um, general fear of control over you, which 
for a while used to be ludicrous. It used to be something people laugh about and say, where do you even have this, these reflexes from? These things, and Zonavan also very plastically uh, describes the desire to not appear Eastern or, or perform, outperform your Easternness and leave that behind that I personally know very well, and I suspect that you guys might as well, since we're all Eastern Europeans here. Small disclaimer here. <laughs> I don't believe that Hungary is Central Europe. I think yeah. Central Europe is Austria, and that place only and everything else from there is left and right. <laughs> don't argue with that. But, um, of course, I'm an Eastern Hungarian, so for me it's better if we're all Eastern and not only me within Hungary. So, you know, that's a different perspective. Anyway, um, that's, um, that's a bit closer to a joke, but not entirely. Um, and this this resonates with me very well, especially when we're talking about a sort of perceived, but at least somewhat somewhat imaginary meritocracy, the belief that if you're smart enough and work hard, you can, you know, you can make yourself a place under the sun. That's the American dream, isn't it? That's like the core of the American dream that we were sold on and, um, and core of the ideology that was... It, sort of central to the promise of Divende. And I think there's a lot of emphasis in this discourse and it has to be a lot of emphasis on huge expectations, outsized promises, and a lot of disappointment. I think in, in um, Bola and Greshkovich's article and Owen Hefferly's article, um, it's it's a brilliant juxtaposition of outsized expectations from, from the two ends of the continuum that then we find we we find them uh, find ourselves with with a capitalistic setup that is not serving any of us well, right? And Zonavan is a is a, is a more personal tone about how you try to still make your way, and it sort of creeps up on you. Do you guys even have this experience, or is it just something that I that that works for me? I, I must admit, I tend to think about this a lot more these days than I used to. And <laughs> part of the reason I, I think it's entirely right that we kind of keep a number of reflexes while trying to transform ourselves so much. But also, I think what is, again, very strong in the Schlegel uh, essay is that, of course, there's a loss of meaning. Uh, the word uh, after 1989, 1990 doesn't quite make sense anymore. Even people who may have been, you know, uh, the uh, the most uh, uh, vehement uh, anti-communists uh, privately, mm -hmm. they lived in a symbolic universe. Yeah. And that suddenly disappeared. And I think especially for for members of our generation, you know, we were very young uh, when this happened, but then we grew up in a time when, you know, we didn't really quite know where things were going, and many of the habits of our parents and of our teachers and so uh, were, were, were a bit questioned and were being undermined by something that was coming. So uh, the societies were looking uh, to the future when things would finally consolidate again, and of course once that happened, then you realize you, you no longer quite had chances uh, to change things, so that was, again, very scary for a different reason. And that, again, links very strongly to what Krastev and, and Holmes uh, in their book and also Krastev in this uh, interview with uh, Simon Garnett and, and uh, Reka King of Pop, uh, you uh, uh, argues that, uh, nam namely, uh, that of course there was a strong uh, sense that Eastern Europe needs to imitate uh, the West and, and needs to kind of declare liberalism as the end of the history because that's basically the Hegelian vision that was in place. So as Krastev says, it was much easier for intellectuals from Eastern Europe to accept that liberalism is the final world in history because that's the way they used to think under mm. communism, right? So this was just basically changing the subject of, of what it was than to say that history maybe has no meaning and has no teleology, right? Yeah, in all fairness, um, Fukuyama has been long praised and criticized for for the theory of the end of history, which was was I think more sort of a singing the zeitgeist mm -hmm. than something just out of the blue. Yeah. Uh, this was um, this was sort of a, a, an experience or an expectation of many. Um, but then again, when we come back to that. His thesis about um, about the end of history is basically a sort of twisted Marx paraphrases uh, about the the history of humankind only starting after the current history mm -hmm. ends because history so far has only been uh, the history of exploitation, right, and class warfare. And once that ends, starts the actual history. Now, this is a very weird sort of perverted, um, although very witty. A rereading of this 
um, sort of central dogma of of um, this diluted Marxism or Marxism Leninism. It used to be called Foxy Moxie with the compulsory courses at universities here because it was just you know uh, it was more more or less a laughing stock after a while this this compulsory uh, ideological education uh, but this was the central notion and there's these central tropes of of uh, turning Hegel from its head or his head to his toes and this turning from head to toes this is also a recurring trope but there's also a bunch of recurring tropes um, around die Wende or however we want to call it I'm a little bit still reluctant to say 89 Hungarians for instance would talk about 1990 uh, the Soviet Union's collapse is uh, officially let's say 91 and then a then a slow, spectacular, and very painful demise from then on, a, a huge and and, uh, and very influential process. So the anniversary, if you like, is far from over. When is the anniversary over? How do we, how do we define the anniversary? Which is basically uh, also telling our, our listeners which Christmas is the last Christmas <laughs> you can get this volume for your relatives as a relevant <laughs> piece. I mean, you can get it for any Christmas along with any other European anthologies, but Unless this, is, this is very, very timely now. So how long does this, uh, does this anniversary last? Uh, where do you mm-hmm. think is mm-hmm. this series of events mm-hmm. as close as a unit? I, no, cool. yeah, definitely, that is a great point. I think especially from... Uh, Yugoslav perspective, 89 doesn't quite have the same meaning. And I think, you know, for many, even has the opposite meaning, not so much, an, you know, a moment of great hope, because, of course, 89, um, from the Yugoslav perspective, that is the year of Milosevic's famous speech and kind of turning his populist, uh, neo-authoritarian communism, like full-fledged, you know, neo-nationalism that was already um, kind of uh, predicting what was about to happen. So, and, you know, for each Yugoslav Republic, then the dates are different, but it's mostly 1991 and so on and so forth. It definitely, there is no like 89, as, as you mentioned. Yeah, but uh, also it's, I it's think that example... It's, it's, a symbolic, it's a symbolic day, just as 1914 is a symbolic date, right? We, mm-hmm. You know, like in the Balkans, the war started in 1912, uh, mm-hmm. uh, sorry, and uh, in, in, in Greece it ended in 22 or 21, right? Or in Poland. Yeah, and, well, so and, and they, in Asia it lasted way longer, well, so yeah. when we're talking Again, about think, the First World War. So I think one thing we are trying to uh, to show, and this is, I think, very central to the volume, the way I understand it, and I think there are many different readings here, of course, many possible readings, is that the Cold War is, is over, mm-hmm. but the East-West division of Europe is yes. not quite over. Yes. And this is why I think this, this is an ongoing process, right? In a way, 89, we thought that that division would be overcome, and now we know that probably that division has to do not only with the Cold War, not only with post-war history, but has to do with long-term development, right? Under communism, there was this famous uh, thesis about the divergence of East and West, right? The communist regimes also try to legitimate themselves by saying that Eastern Europe had very different development from the West. Uh, and this goes back to, you know, five, f- some 500 years. And after 89, we have forgotten about these theories. We said, oh, that was just what the communists wanted mm-hmm. to say in order to, to show uh, that, that there's a necessity for a different kind of regime. And then we thought, okay, actually, there is no reason for Eastern Europe to be different from the West. But now I think we're much more realistic about that question. And we realized that, that the difference wasn't really made by the Cold War. It was made by something much, much more powerful. Uh, and in fact, the East-West division uh, is, is very likely to be with us. If you look at uh, European Union level debates today, so much of it uh, goes exactly in this direction, right? That the Western Europeans are no longer sure why they accepted mm-hmm. so many Eastern European member states. The Eastern Europeans don't no, no longer want to uh, comply with certain expectations coming from the West. So there is definitely a deterioration of the relationship and that again I think is going to be uh, definitely with us uh, in the 2020s so whenever you pick up this volume hopefully you'll see that we were some of the first ones to try to focus mm-hmm. more attention uh, on these very controversial questions I suggest we blame it all on the Habsburgs and just <laughs> let them let them sink in it <laughs> I think they deserve it well even if it's not fair for fully <laughs> it, it's, for, it's fair partly but I think they can take a bit of historical blame for now for like 20 years 30 years <laughs> until we are ready to face some responsibility again or if you can come up with any better idea please uh, say it in the comments 
Um, just to turn back to tropes, because there's a bunch of them that we run into whenever we're talking about this, especially in private, but also throughout the essays. Um, there's certain tropes which are very definitive about 89, and they are not the ones that would be circulating in popular imagination in the West. Uh, so the the so-called fall, which never actually was a fall of the Berlin Wall, which was a, a demilitarized zone and not one single wall, um, is a trope that appears in the West. But what would come up in conversations with most of the people is definitely the Ceausescu uh, execution, isn't it? Which is, a, which is a weird sort of, for me personally, at least... I never saw it. I remember my parents watching it, and that was a that was a whole event. And whenever that comes up, it gives everyone the goosebumps. And Luca, you told us just uh, before this recording that this is your first political memory from your childhood. Yeah, it's, it's the first memory I have, I have about any public event. I would say not yeah. private. I have private memories from before about that, but that's definitely um, the first political uh, event. What, what I think what has become clear in the past decade, of course, is that for a while, if you remember 10 years ago, it seemed that the East-West divide was not a defining divide in, in, in current Europe, the, you know, because another one, South-North emerged as well, right? And for a moment, it seemed like Poland is the Northern Europe, you know, the frugal, um, you know, liberal Northern Europe, and Greece is the South. So that suddenly this, 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 uh, this division came to the forefront. Mm-hmm. Now, again, you know, in the past years, we are again back to the East-West division. I think, you know, of course, Europe is... Is has many of th- this kind of divisions. We can also like make another division, which is like peripheries versus center. You know those countries which went liberal in the you know other, under American um, protectorate in post-war period, and those that then that did not. And we have Portugal, and we have Spain, we have Greece, of course, that have very different trajectories from France and from uh, Switzerland, you know, or from or from Germany. So there are many divisions, and and. Um, what is this volume doesn't want to reinforce this issue that that the east-west division is the most is the defining one in Europe. I think what is really valuable about this volume is that it helps us to understand first of all, like to think, um, you know, how you know how by thinking about the experience of Eastern Europe, how does this helps us to understand Europe as a whole. And also the other way around, right? How, you know, uh, more, you know, less idealized, more nuanced understanding of what European development habit, you know, help us understand where is, you know, where are Eastern European states right now. Yes. And, and that, that makes, you know, that, that I've always thought, you know, being born on the border, that, you know, that we have a potential vantage point of understanding cleavages, not just within our con- continent, but about the world. And I think that's, that's something very valuable. And I'm really glad that even though we didn't, you know, make it explicit, that really came out, I think, in many places of this volume. Yes, exactly. If I may add to that, you know, we started by saying uh, that there was this sense that there would be westernization, and in more recent years there's this shock that there is actually a process of easternization going yes. on, and this wasn't meant to happen, this goes against <laughs> that norm and so on, and this feels shocking goes against the course to, a, of history. To, a lot of, to a lot of people. But what is very interesting there is that I think in Western Europe in particular, very few people realized how much 89 would transform the West as yes, well. Yes. I think they thought the East needs to change, they need to transform themselves radically, and we can remain what we have been at least since uh, 1945 or after, you know, the, the establishment of this post-war uh, consensus and so. And with the enlargement of the European Union, what has happened is that the European Union has started to focus increasingly on the eastern member states, partly because most of the migrants come from these states. So if you look at a number of migrants and there aren't too many of them between different Western European countries, but there's a lot of migration from Eastern to Western Europe. So that actually changes the whole idea of a Schengen and open, you know, uh, Europe. And also, of course, all the funding, <laughs> which until then we're going for French farmers and, 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 and maybe the Spanish. And so uh, suddenly it starts to flow uh, into, into the pockets of Eastern European uh, states. You know, Poland uh, is definitely uh, the biggest recipient. Hungary comes, uh, you know, close uh, in proportional terms and so on. So 
actually the entire European structure changes because of, of, the, of the end of the Cold War and because of the end of the Soviet regimes. And Western Europeans have only started to deal with this problem now mm -hmm. because symbolically yes. they have excluded Eastern Europe for the longest time, right? They constructed an idea of Europe, uh, which was the, the main notion after 45, you know, that they were building Europe without ever thinking that mm -hmm. there is Poland, there is Romania, uh, and maybe there is Ukraine and Belarus, right? This wasn't, these were not mm -hmm. questions they were, they were really entering into, right? Europe ended uh, where there was uh, that divide and they were comfortably uh, on the right side uh, of the Iron Curtain. Yeah, I think where Europe ends is, is a very open question, even, uh, even uh, now with EU borders seeming to define our understanding of Europe. And I still have this problem that I know this is a bit of hair splitting, but the US is not America and the European Union isn't really Europe. Also, Europe as a geographical unit is very different from Europe as a cultural and political unit. And if this sounds like commonplace, then you're in a lucky spot hmm. because this doesn't apply, I think, in, in the, the use of the terminology in a lot of people and can be very exclusive with uh, with entire nations or, or peoples or, or cultural achievements, which in a certain sense belong in Europe and in a certain sense can have demands towards Europe because they have been appropriated in certain ways. But as far as that goes, um, let's just get back to the central trope, the Western central trope, the end of history, which obviously was was more of a sort of a witty statement than an actual uh, political philosophy, to be frank, um, or also a bit of a wish, I guess. When, when this was the big talking point. And I'm pretty sure that, that some uh, Eastern European um, ambitious intellectuals and, and mainly business people who really believed in this more had this as an ambition than anything else. So they were more keen on this than Fukuyama himself, actually. Um, so was 89 the end of something or is... Now, let's say, is uh, 2020 the end of something? To me, you know, very simplistically, the end of teleology, historical teleology, it may well be, wouldn't it? Or is it too far-fetched? No, I think it's still, you know, especially if we take 89 as more symbolic, you know, a symbolic day that may encompass, you know, 90 or 91, the fall of, you know, the Soviet Union was definitely a seizure in, you know, uh, in... Uh, Western or even global, in global uh, politics history, something ended there, right? And the insight of Fukuyama in this Hegelian way was that, you know, this is, okay, it's Hegelian, but it's also pre-Hegelian. It's, it's enlightenment idea that you have certain stages of human development. Uh, you know, certain times where economic uh, relations and thought and so on converged into a specific uh, socioeconomic and political uh, system. And, you know, the, the, the point of Fukuyama is that we are now stuck with stuck or, you know, happily, you know, uh, happily have to live with uh, liberal democracy and capitalism as the ultimate, you know, the highest form of development. And in a certain way, in a very kind of deep way, it seems that this uh, this uh, statement still holds true, in the sense, and I think there there are many articles that point to this, that even the most uh, serious challenges to the to the to, to, to the liberal hegemony around the world don't see particularly don't seem particularly credible, uh, and that they don't actually, and I think it's even more important, they don't they don't actually base their legitimacy and their uh, uh, domestic and foreign support on the idea that they are, you know, ushering a new uh, model which is better, right? Uh, and I think this is quite important. That makes these uh, a new uh, wannabe dictatorship or new uh, uh, authoritarian systems very different from the ones that we knew from the 20th century. But of course, also different from the, from the pre-modern ones, and I think that. But of course, um, the reader should know that 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 whenever you, we write about Eastern Europe, of course, there has to be text about you know a populist uh, resurgence and so on. And there are actually plenty of very good analysis also in this volume about you know the specificities and. Um, 
the very strange aspects of of this, let's say, anti-liberal uh, populist regimes uh, that that work in a very different way, they legitimize their, you know, themselves in a very different way as we were used to think in you know in the past hundred years. The way I would put it is that you know. In many ways, Eastern Europe, the Soviet satellite states, but also the concept of the West are concepts from the Cold War. Yes. And they were defined in a certain way during the Cold War. And we thought that with 89, Eastern Europe would disappear, mm -hmm. Eastern Europe would westernize. But what actually happened, what, what 89 was also the end of, was a certain idea of the West. And that was an yes. idea of the West which was in competition with the Soviet model, but which also believed in something like welfareist capitalism, like the Germans like to call it the soziale Marktwirtschaft, right? the social market economy. So in a way, 89 is the end of, of an attempt to tame uh, capitalism. Again, the Soviet systems might have been terrible in many ways, especially for those who lived under them, but at the very same time, they forced the West into a competition uh, along certain values, social and economic rights, which then they could in a way do away with. And that leads to what we have today. I think uh, capitalism to court, right? Capitalism going uh, global. Capitalism uh, alone, as Milano ca says. Capitalism yeah. alone. And, and that, of course, also then implies that there is a kind of a, a sense today, and I think a growing sense, uh, that, that this is a self-destructive system without a certain corrective to it, without taking uh, into account certain limitations. This is a self-destructive system. And during the Cold War, uh, this system could limit itself partly because of the Cold War competition. Mm -hmm. Yeah, whether um, a Soviet experiment or a Soviet experiment 2.0 is the appropriate corrective to global capitalism, well, that I will leave to the listener. Please, please share your thoughts in the comments. Um, the more nuanced, the more we will appreciate it, probably. Although, if you are great at punchlines, please do share those as well. I'm really lucky to have had Luka Lysia Gabrielcic, editor of our partner journal Raspotia from Slovenia, here with me in the studio in Budapest, and also Ferenc Lazzo from the Maastricht University, curators of the volume that you can already order from CU Press, The Legacy of the Vision. There will be a link in the description to uh, ordering that. This is the perfect whatever type of festivity present, I think, for anyone who wants to think more than just uh, look, although I do appreciate a good visual project. This is not one of those. Thank you guys for taking the time and being here with us. And Thank I, you so much for having us. Let's, let's hope for an easier academic year than we had this year <laughs> so far. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. You've been listening to Gogorin, the Eurozine podcast with authors and editors from our network of culture journals from throughout Europe and beyond. Please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review so more people can find us. We rely on your support. Every donation helps keep Eurozine free and independent. So if you appreciate our work, and we know you do, please support us for as little as five euros a month or whatever you can afford. Thank you. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter, so you'll always know what's worth thinking about. I was Editor-in-Chief Reka Kinga Pop, and I hope you've enjoyed the program.